0: So uh, Nathan, welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you back.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, that's good to be back.
0: No worries. And this time we've got you uh, in full video. Some
1: people are going to have a lucky treat waiting for them, aren't they? Oh yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> so uh, we are. Uh, we're going to explore some of the amazing work you've been doing on the Support the Workers Collective. This resource that's uh, ever growing for for medics. Um, but before we, we look at that, just um, for those that weren't able to join us for the first instalment, um, uh, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, Nathan?
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm Nathan Smith. Um, I'm a research fellow at the University of Manchester, I'm doing research on psychology in kind of extreme and high-risk settings, so looking at how people perform under extreme stress, basically. Um, what impact it has on their behavior, how they kind of make decisions, and then the sort of onward implications for their health and well-being um, when they're in the environment, but also when they come back. So that's a kind of broad overview. Um, My studies kind of focus on lots of different extreme groups, and that might be people in space, Antarctica, on various types of expeditions, some stuff with military, um, and then a bit of work with extreme medics as well.
0: And you've worked with medics in all kinds of environments haven't you desert polar areas antarctic space simulation
1: yeah i mean not always medics but yeah with quite a few different populations um yeah and then ha- and done quite a bit of work with medics as well um through through when um yeah with operating in various places
0: yeah great well it's a it's, uh, brilliant to have you uh have you on board on, on the team so um This support the workers project. How did this all come about?
1: Yeah, so about two weeks ago, we when when this kind of coronavirus stuff kicked off, we we were thinking we had a chat, our research group in Manchester, and we're like, okay, we've got some kind of expertise here. Of you know, we've been doing this fairly niche research for for quite a while, which is a bit kind of left field, Um, and most people kind of ignore you for a long time until actually, now we're in this kind of extreme situation where people are having to live in isolation and confinement. And we sort of sat there and went, Oh, well, maybe we can offer some insight onto some of this based on this kind of history of kind of studying these people that choose to go to those places. So we wrote a, a kind of um, an accessible piece of work that was published in the psychologist magazine on coping in isolated, confined conditions. Um, and that got shared. And then through that work, we were contacted by someone in the NHS to produce a kind of rapid training and education curriculum for workers that were going to be supporting people on the front line of of kind of tackling COVID-19 and that was really focused on pulling together the most up-to-date evidence on kind of psychology and behavioural science in extreme pressure situations um, and then producing these really rapid kind of briefing notes so that people could quickly get up to speed and know some of the really important things that would inform their work.
0: Yeah, and what's really powerful is uh, it's all topic based. It's very carefully referenced. It's all evidence based, and your uh, you know the the contributors you've got are really real experts in their field. It's uh, so it's really really great. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, it's been like we were just saying before the call started. It's it's been sort of a little bit surprising at how many people have been willing to give up their time um, and just sort of say, actually, yeah, I can I can contribute to this um and and part of that is making sure there's some internal quality assurance so that all of the stuff that we're producing is going through a, a rapid peer review so kind of it's a one-day turnaround but it's it's really important to make sure that we're not missing anything um yeah, and just yeah. that you know everything's tight and sound
0: we we're in an age of information abundance and the last thing we need right now is more misinformation there's a lot of a lot of rubbish out there isn't there
1: yeah yeah i mean and, and that we don't want to be we don't want to be in that pile. So hopefully we've avoided that.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you've dodged that, uh, luckily. So, um, yeah, let's dive in. Resilience. That's such a big buzzword right now. Why is resilience so relevant Um, at, at this current time?
1: So, yeah, I mean, so so resilience is something that we hear people say all the time. You know, we need to be resilient. Resilience this, resilience that. Um, I think for a long time, it was a fairly unclear or ambiguous term like we did people talk about it but we don't really it's hard to put our finger on what it actually is Um, there's been a bit of progress on that side of things so from a definitional point of view um, we now know that resilience is a kind of dynamic process that results from kind of adversity and stress um, and it has lots of different components so you know our physiological function whether we're fit and healthy psychological state so how we think and feel um, and our social context is really important for whether we're going to be resilient. So have we got that support network around us? Um, all of those factors will interact and contribute to us being able to respond positively to adversity. Well, it's, it's quite—it's not a, a, that much of a leap to see why that's important at the moment, um, given that the workers that are responding to the virus um, are going to face some adversity at some point, um, whether that's because they're stretched, um, they've maybe, they've not had much sleep or they're, you know, they've not had much time to eat or, you know, and over time, these things kind of wear. Um, and so at some point, there's going to be these kind of difficult situations that we, we hope people have the resources, those, those physiological, psychological, and social resources to be able to maintain their mental health, um, in, in the face of adversity. Uh, and, and that's really what resilience is. It's a, it's kind of operationally viewed as a good mental health outcome following some kind of adversity.
0: Mm. And in your article, you distinguish between individual and team resilience. What, why, why are those? Why is that difference important?
1: Yeah, because I mean, because they they happen at different levels. So you have you know you, if you've got a team of six people, um, the the team will the, the resilient function of that team acting as a whole towards its overarching goal will be influenced by the individual resilience of the people within it. Um, and that might be that the team is able to, it's referred to as an emergent property. So it's something that develops from within. Um, and it, it may be that if you've got five people within the team that are demonstrating these kind of uh, resilient uh, responses, and one person is maybe struggling, the team might still be able to be resilient and respond to adversity at that team level quite well. Um, but if you start then having multiple people that are maybe struggling to cope with the, the demands, the resilient function of the team is going to be impacted. Um, so it so it's something that emerges from the interactions between the people in the group um, yeah. and then helps the team function towards achieving their their overarching goal. Um, yeah. So it's quite important to distinguish between those two.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what role do you think leaders in that team have in optimising the resilience of the individuals? In that team,
1: yeah, I mean, I think the leadership is crucial, um, especially in this the, the the sort of current situation people are, are in. Um, we did a brief on on leadership, and, and the thing that we really focused on was the the role of the leader in providing this kind of um, morale uh, and the, the sort of social support, um, because you know the leaders can direct and guide in, in terms of technical skills, but I think at the moment the the critical role of the leader is is that kind of transformational view and and really inspiring the the people to come on this kind of quite arduous journey with them Um, and that will contribute to these kind of from the social side of the resilient function that input will really shape how people respond yeah
0: yeah so i presume you you need we need leaders in healthcare right now that are in order to inspire they need to be taking a a positive approach or they need to be upbeat about tackling the challenges ahead and not getting mired in all of the uncertainty and and doom mongering etc
1: yeah yeah i think so i mean there has to be a i guess a sense of realism there's no point in kind of ignoring the the fact that there are going to be tough times and and i think you know if a leader did that people would probably be a little bit like oh they've got their head in the sand but i think it's it's about instilling this kind of positive emotional Um, responses in the people so you know trying to instill a sense of belief and hope and optimism Um, and then if people are struggling it's helping them counter those negative emotional experiences but really really trying to boost the the morale and mood because we know it's infectious you know if you've got a team and someone's really down and low that that can quite easily kind of find its way through the rest of the team um, yeah. and so to so kind of maintaining that across the group is really important
0: could be more infectious than the virus itself
1: yeah some might say so. um yeah but we, we know that from and we know that from history from extreme situations it, there's lots of examples of that where morale can carry people through pretty bad uh, bad
0: situations mm-hmm. and it's interesting i think um th- resilience has been uh, misused in some in some senses in in the sense that the whole term resilience means uh, it, it, it's like resistant materials it's it's this idea of being able to bounce back from adversity and it, it somehow it, the very semantics of it focuses the emphasis on on individuals need to just toughen up and in some ways people have argued that that takes away from an organizational uh, duty to those individuals in, in 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 that team uh, to, to to care for them and provide the right conditions whereby they can be resilient. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so my my a good friend and colleague um, who's done a lot of research on resilience, a guy called Mustafa Sarka, Yeah. Um, he he has a really nice analogy for this, and it, it, it puts this picture on when he does his sort of presentations, and it's a a wilting flower, um, and the idea is that you know, the the flower can be resilient, but it requires the environment to be right for it to be so. Um, And so you give it some sunshine and you give it some water and then it's able to be resilient, Um, but the environment contributes to that resilience as much as the individual. Um, And so you really, you know, you need both. Uh, And and I think that's really important to, to highlight that one, vulnerability is not the opposite of resilience so you can be vulnerable and be resilient they're not they're not kind of mutually excuse, exclusive um and i think that's a quite an important distinction to make but to the the social context really matters um, and, and so it's important to get that right
0: how do you suggest that health workers can embrace their own vulnerabilities when facing all of this uncertainty and, and potential risk to themselves what what could they do to to do that
1: so, uh, so I think, uh, I mean, the really, one of the really key things at this moment in time is to get that social support network established. Um, and that doesn't mean you, know, you need to have lots of friends. It, it means trying to figure out and understand who are your important sources of support. Um, yeah. And you might, you might try and f- find or identify to you where you want to go to to get that support when you need it and, and making it explicit. So saying to the people that are potentially going to be the ones that provide that support, if I'm struggling can I come to you and, and can we chat about it so you, you've already figured out where you can go and it's not a kind of reactive thing um, so there's, there's something proactive there um, I think from a leadership point of view it's that empathetic support so it's not necessarily about always agreeing with someone's perspective but saying you know I understand you feel that way and trying to trying to provide that support even if you don't necessarily agree um, with with the way that they feel or behave or whatever it is they're doing so you know a leader can lead without necessarily having to always sympathize it's more um finding a a route to support those people when they need it
0: Mm, okay and and another key theme you touch on in this resource is motivation and presumably that plays into your ability to be resilient and i think with a lot of health workers right now are quite motivated we've been called upon We've, we've got a massive round of applause last week which was very nice. But I just wonder how that plays out over the coming months, how we can sustain that motivation, that drive to to still be performing at our our peak. What what are your thoughts on that, Nathan?
1: Yeah. So I mean, so motivation is going to be essential um, for this this period of time. And we don't know how long this period of time is going to be. You know, it could be six weeks um and things might start to calm down and that might be you know that might be the that might be it but it could be that we're, we're still in a similar sort of situation 12 months or 18 months down the road um until like a vaccine's developed or something like that so um, having that kind of longevity which it comes down to being motivated to want to go in every day and perform to a high standard is is going to be pretty crucial um like you said at the moment people are what we'd term intrinsically motivated. Um you, you, you could probably generalize that and say most most healthcare workers are kind of wanting to tackle this thing. Um and, and what we, we make a distinction in the brief between different types of motivation and the, the one thing that we're clear about is that motivation isn't just how much effort someone's putting in. So it isn't just about persisting and, and being determined. It's also about why you're doing it. Um, so what's the underpinning reason um and the really high quality motivations are real like enjoyment and pleasure so um some people although the virus is not necessarily going to be enjoyable the 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 sense of excitement and buzz and feeling really purposeful that comes with responding is, is, is can be intrinsically satisfying um but also knowing that what you're doing is really important and has value um, is is a really strong motivator and and will sustain people to to work hard and and actually stay happy and healthy when they're doing it. I guess over time, um, what we could potentially see is a a kind of decline in the quality of that motivation. So people may be starting to shift to, you know, potentially maybe resenting having to keep working as hard, especially if other people are sat at home in quarantine, kind of not, not doing as much or perceived as being kind of not doing as much. Um, so there's, there's maybe this kind of sense of, of guilt, um, because, you know, you're feeling that way, but you're having to go in, um, uh, and, you know, potentially then if we're having to draft other people in and we're having to reward them in some way to to do the work, then that's shifting towards a more extrinsic motivation, um, which we know those lower quality motivations are less good for intentions to persist, um, avoiding burnout and, and some of these other kind of more maladaptive responses
0: mm. i do wonder how autonomy is going to play into longer term motivation as the health system gets completely reorganized and health workers are being redeployed in different areas to staff these huge units like this nightingale hospital 4,000 bedded hospital in, in in the excel center in london which will be the biggest hospital in the world at when it's full and you just think you know working in a system like that completely outside of your normal remit. Um, that that's going to be really challenging
1: yeah yeah and we i mean we know that there's lots of evidence in you know, 30 years worth of evidence on with various study designs from experimental studies cross-sectional longitudinal studies we know that there are some rules about motivation um, obviously autonomy that you picked up on is a, is a big one so having agency and autonomy over our decisions contributes to those higher quality motivations and it's more likely to sustain us um, being competent again, we, we like to feel like we're good at stuff, we like to feel like we're improving, that's going to contribute. Well, if people are deployed to areas, or they're doing work that they're not sure about, or they're they maybe leaving feeling like they've not been as effective, then that, that can be quite damaging. Um, and then connectedness and relatedness, so being part of teams that you feel like you really belong to, you feel connected to the people, that, that feeds into this kind of good quality motivation.
0: Yeah, great. And, you know, a big part of this, let's move on to team dynamics now. You mentioned the word team. Many of us are used to working in familiar clinical settings with workers that we have we know well. and We're likely to be forced into new situations with relative strangers and forced to perform very high pressure, high stakes work. Um, yeah. How do you think that's going to, to play out?
1: yeah i mean so the, the first thing i'd say is often in these situations people thrive and so that you yeah. know there's a challenge to be met and teams will come together and, and meet it um, more often than not so i think there's there's that point to kind of get out up from i think beyond that there are what i what call non-technical skills that can facilitate some of that um, and you, you probably know all about them already but um, there are things like situational awareness um, the real importance of, of communication. So making sure that you have a system whereby people can communicate. Um, and it's, that's not just about talking, but it's about maybe active listening. Um, it's about checking understanding. So if if someone asks you something to do something, rather than just going off and feeling like, oh, did I understand what they're saying? It's just checking it back and going, okay, have I got this right before going away and doing it? And really closing the, the communication loop. So, so everything's clear and um, information is being passed effectively. S- some of that is going to have to be developed kind of rapidly. Um, and that relies on building trust between team members um, and, and admit, admitting, you know, not knowing if, if you don't know stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the issues that yeah, our kind of colleagues that tested with some of the support the workers work um, highlighted was when teams in the current crisis are coming together, there's going to be different cultures, even from across the NHS, there's going to be different cultures that come, that are, you know, the ways of working will be different from different departments, different tribes. Yeah, Yeah. so, and and some people are used to acting autonomously. Some people are used to acting under guidance. Some people might be used to having a higher status and hierarchy and wanting to be the decision maker, but actually in some of these situations, they might have to take a step down and be a follower. Um, so it's, it's trying to establish processes that enable that kind of dynamic and team interaction to work efficiently. Um, and, and just, you know, what are the checklists? What are the, SA, what are the standard operating procedures, um, that might need to be developed now that haven't, that are suitable for this current situation, um, which might be different to what has been done in the past.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Established established hierarchies will be completely upended. We've got retired doctors coming back into the health service. You know, medical students being uh, rapidly graduated so that they can be on the front line. Um, and you know, many of those retired doctors will have been quite senior, and they might suddenly find themselves being a, a dog's body or run around in a, a massive four thousand bedded unit, doing a job that they is completely alien to what what they've been doing their whole career. It, it, it's going to be really interesting, I think
1: but but with the vision with the vision kind of getting people to work towards that same overarching goal i think it's doable yeah. but it's just getting the buy in and setting the setting the norms um you know what yeah. what are we as a team what are our norms here um, yeah. and i think it's something one of my colleagues when when we did a bit of the rapid peer review on some of the stuff we produce yeah. um there's a really interesting point made about not taking kind of direct language personally and i thought it was quite interesting because i think in you know, we're, we're lots of us psychologists are very kind of soft, you know, like we, we want people to have a nice interaction and to all be very friendly. Um, But there are times where you're going to have to be direct and it's, it's keeping that in mind of this isn't a personal attack on me. This is just, this is the interaction in the context of, that I'm in. Um, and, and some of that might be a bit unusual, especially for some of the um, junior doctors that might be graduating quickly, um, yeah, yeah. being thrown into
0: the yeah, so I I trained in, in ED before I moved to general practice, and the language used, the culture in those two different work environments is very different. General GPS, we're uh, we're very conversational, very low tone. Um, yeah, we're we're trying to gain the trust of the patients, and when we communicate with colleagues, we translate that communication style along, and it's not the most efficient way of. Particularly in a crisis or uh, you know very immediate situation where it's time critical, it's not the way to communicate. And you talk about closed loop communication. That's the communication style in 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 emergency departments that is most effective. And for people like particularly GPs that aren't used to talking like that, it can it can rub people up the wrong way because you have to look people in the eye and you have to give them in no uncertain terms, tell them exactly what you need them to do. There's a clear chain of command. Um, and there's no beating around the bush, no pleasantries, no asking them how they feel about it. <laughs> and, you know, rap- amazingly different cultures, and, and those two different worlds are going to collide. And you want—I mean, you want the teams to keep
1: keep coming back and performing well. So I think that's some of the stuff that might need ironing out. Um, and I'm sure it would happen naturally, but I think some of the work we're doing might speed that up a little bit and just get people ready for that culture shock, maybe.
0: yeah, yeah. But I really hope I really like your your idea that we'll hopefully as um as a collective be able to summon the motivation to to make that effort to to, to cross those those boundaries those tribal lines within healthcare that will enable us all to just work together and and for each other and not not in, not in a kind of competitive or uh a way.
1: I think, I mean, I think, I think there's plenty of precedent for that. You know, Yeah. The, when the, uh, when it, when it all comes up to, you know, making those really tough decisions and having to perform to that high standard, I think often individuals and teams rise to the challenge. Um, yeah. and so I think there's lots of things to be positive and optimistic about. Um, yeah. and you know, that there will be difficulties and that's, that's yeah. normal, but, um, yeah, there's lots of yeah. good stuff on the horizon too.
0: Absolutely. I mean, multi-agency working you know, between different professionals is nothing new, is it? It's been it's been around for a long time. It's just it's just a just a slight reshift.
1: Yeah, and you know the ED colleagues and some of the kind of first responders that um, they know that already. They they already work in these multi-interagency teams. Um, yeah, so so I think. There's, there's lots of support and evidence out there of how things work. It's just making sure that all, that all filters in, especially with things like the Nightingale Hospital, which have come together very quickly. Um, yeah, and you know, just making sure that all those processes are established and in place.
0: Absolutely, and one thing that good teams do is they, as well as, uh, reflect uh, planning forwards and, and 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 being able to resolve. Uh, conflicts and disagreements they also reflect back on their own performance and think about how they can continue to improve um, Then, and that forms the the, the basis of, the, of a debrief after uh, an incident um, and you've written about this in, in, on your site tell us why the debrief is so important Nathan
1: yeah so, so the debrief um, the performance debrief sometimes referred to as a lessons learned or after action review um, is there's there's plenty of evidence so there's a really good meta-analysis done a few years ago um, which evaluated all the evidence of, of, of debriefs and how they can enhance performance for teams um, and there's you know there's a sort of 20 to 25 percent improvement in team performance when debriefs are done um, so that as an intervention it's pretty rapid it's not very expensive um, it takes a little bit of time so that 20 to 25 percent improvement is based on a kind of rough 18 minute debrief so you know, it's not. It's not too much of an investment. Um, they the, the debrief process has a few components, and it's really designed as a kind of active, like learning, self discovery um, process. So it's not just about a leader giving you feedback um, and you just sort of sitting there and taking feedback, but it, it has to have some kind of active involvement um, of the people that are involved. So um, it, it, you know, ideally, there'll be multiple perspectives shared. Um, there'll be some way of logging and monitoring the lessons learned, um, with with the view of guiding people towards some kind of development. So, like, what what did we do well? What didn't we do well? Where are we going next? Um, how can we apply those lessons in the future? Um, so, so there's a kind of process to it. We we talked about it in the brief and, and provided a few pointers in terms of how how people might do a debrief, what leaders could do to make sure people have the opportunity to speak up um, and and kind of it really try and involve people's perspective. Um, So I I also am aware with one of the collaborators on this project got in touch and said they've been doing another review, looking specifically at the role of debriefs in team resilience. Um, And again, they found the same thing. So a, a fairly good effect size of doing debriefs on resilient team performance, as well as just. Um, as well as performance itself, but this specifically focusing on resilient function within teams. Um, so there's a kind of performance and health aspect to
0: to these debrief um, processes. Yeah, in my experience, unfortunately, the debrief is one of the first things to go when there's operational pressure and the, the, the workload starts to ramp up. So you you think that it's worth the the, t- the time investment for teams to to have a little time out and and just think about what, what's happened and uh, and and reflect on that.
1: Yeah, and so we're quite explicit in there saying that, that there's not going to be opportunity for a debrief every time. But but what leaders could try and do is really identify the value of the debrief, um, frame it as an opportunity to learn. So it's not about being judgmental um, and really try and set some time aside regularly to do them. Um, one of the things that's suggested is for leaders to try and develop the skills to do a five-minute debrief. So rather than that 18-minute um, kind of average length. Can can you develop the skills to do a rapid performance debrief um, and really get it concise so that you've got a kind of real quick fire way of getting feedback, getting input, and, and logging those lessons learned, um, which we should be more manageable than trying to set aside twenty minutes to to do it, um, which might be unfeasible.
0: Mm, that's really interesting. Yeah. So really, you know, time efficient debrief. Um, I know there's been a lot of work, particularly in very critical instance where perhaps uh, uh, somebody's died or it's been a very uh, emotive event. There's been a lot, lot of work on the role of debrief uh, in future PTSD for, for those involved. Um, and in the past, there's, the advice was that there should be some kind of structured debrief to, to mitigate against that. Has that thinking changed?
1: yeah so so things have moved on quite a bit there's been a couple of systematic reviews done in the past few years looking at this issue of um, trauma debriefs so these are slightly different to the performance debriefs we just spoke about yeah. um, like you, you highlighted that the kind of when they're delivered is, is after these potentially traumatic events um, the evidence is pretty clear that doing structured trauma debriefs immediately after these types of incidents is not good um, it can actually have and, well, there's no evidence to suggest it works, and it can actually have an adverse effect. So, it can make it can compound the the trauma um, and make make it worse. So, it, doing these structured trauma debriefs is not. I mean, it's, just, it's not in the nice guidelines. They say avoid it. Um, the Psychological Trauma Society don't advocate for it, um, and the person that we had expert review the the brief, um, Professor Neil Greenberg, who's an expert in trauma, was very clear about this: is that it's not advised. Um, what what is advised is peer support, um, some kind of maybe some psychological first aid type support, um, but it's more focused on the, the social um, peer support aspects, um, which is known to bolster resilience and, and kind of protect against some of these um, potential kind of adverse effects later down the line. Um, what leaders could do and managers could do is to keep an eye on it. So. A bit of watchful waiting and just observe um, for a month or so and just see how things kind of play out um, most people you know by far the majority of people won't develop ptsd symptoms after trauma and um, the, the relative percentage that do is is quite small and of course some some people will struggle um, but i think you know this this like watchful period um for that first month or so is is what's recommended at the moment mm-hmm.
0: Okay. And just one last topic I'd I'd love to touch on as well, Nathan, if if you've got time, is this concept of moral injury. And um, we are faced with some unprecedented, I hate, sorry, that word's totally abused at the moment, but unprecedented decisions uh, and health rationing as a result of the very finite resources that we'll have and the, 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 the patient load. Um, and clinicians having to make some very very difficult decisions on who those they allocate those resources to. You know, we're talking about denying you know younger people with no comorbidities the opportunity to have ventilation or intensive care support. Um, I mean, are there what kind of are there any key uh, pointers or insights you could give clinicians to to help them help guide guide them with this?
1: So I mean I think one of the things that we when we pulled this work together, we we identified is so, so moral injury is a, a fairly emergent research area. So we we've sort of known about moral injury for quite a long time, but as a research topic and as a construct, it's it's fairly new. Um and and we're still you know, researchers that are working on this topic are still figuring out exactly what it is and what contributes to it. Um there's there's some pretty good evidence that it's it has a moderate association with PTSD. So um, those things can sometimes um, associate, um, but mental, uh, moral injury is not uh, an, a recognized mental illness in and of itself. Um, so it is an experience that comes from kind of violation of your moral or ethical code. For, for those reasons you highlighted, the you know, lack of resources, having to make tough decisions. Um, I think similar approaches to PTSD management are probably um, helpful. So, um, you know, there's people that are reluctant at the moment to recommend, um, clinical intervention in moral injury, just because it's, um, they're not quite sure the best way to manage it. So some of the PTSD approaches are probably good, that, that peer support, social support, um, making sure people have access to their, their support networks and can communicate about it. I think pre-briefing people, so making sure that they are, that they are aware that, this moral injurious um, experience could could occur is really important. So being quite explicit about you know th- this is what might happen uh, and trying to get people prepared for for it so it doesn't come as a shock when it does or if it does happen. Um, that's that's usually quite a a good way for lots of these psychological factors is if people have the knowledge in advance they can mentally get themselves in a space where they're ready for it um, or at least. You know aware that this could be a response and that can be quite helpful um but yeah you know if if people do experience these potentially more or less injuries um they they will be quite hard
0: okay well that's been really useful uh nathan um is there any final thoughts that you had anything any other kind of Practical or actionable things that that you think would be really helpful for medics on the front line at, at the moment.
1: I mean, I, I would recommend going and just having spending sort of ten or fifteen minutes having a, a skim through the website, um, yeah. just because I think there's probably some quite useful stuff on there that yeah. it is quite practical. So there's some kind of real key recommendations. Um, I guess from all of the stuff we've talked about today, preparation is really key. Um, so if if as a medic or a frontline worker, you end up in self-isolation because you've got symptoms, really try and take that time to prepare yourself for what's, what lies ahead. Um, this thing will still be there after two weeks of, of isolating. So people are going to need to be fresh and ready to go. Um, and that might be, you know, looking after your sleep, making sure you're eating and drinking well, you know, all this kind of real basic self-care stuff that really feeds into that physiological side of being resilient, um, I think, is really important.
0: Yeah, make, using a, any uh, episode of f- uh, self isolation as an opportunity to really, hopefully, get yourself in a strong, strong position so you're ready to go back, uh, uh, back to work and hit the ground running.
1: Yeah. And I, I was chatting to someone earlier today as well about the about sort of narrating these experiences um, and trying to put it into some kind of story in order and I think that could be i'm not saying it, it would work for everyone but i think um, this kind of the journaling or the the storylining of what's going on could be quite helpful as well um, and just provide in in these sort of dynamic and fairly frantic situations it can just provide a bit of order um, and something to look back on when it's all done because you know it's going to be over and there's going to be this kind of come down of, of adrenaline and all this sort of stuff that after these really busy periods where it might feel a bit surreal, um, but knowing what, what the journey has been to that point might be quite helpful for lots of people.
0: Yeah, great. Well, yeah, check out the uh, check out Nathan's site. So it's supporttheworkers.org. Um, thank you so much for your time, Nathan. It's been great to chat to you.
1: Cheers, well, Thanks for having me.
0: No worries.